0: Hello, my friends. Thank you for joining me for our sermon this week that, as you can see, is titled Journey to the Eighth Day. It's Easter when this originally airs in the spring of 2023, but I hope this is the kind of message that won't matter, that it's Easter, that it can say something to you at any time that the Holy Spirit might lead someone to stumble across this message. Journey to the Eighth Day is sort of my way of giving a title to the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, Because it is Easter, I want to, of course, concentrate on the resurrection today, but I want to lead up to it because we didn't post anything for Palm Sunday, and I want to take you from the Palm Sunday journey to the eighth day. And I say eight days under full awareness that there are only seven days on the calendar, but when we talk eighth day, we're talking a brand new beginning. So we want to cover the seven days that lead up to the resurrection and then call the resurrection an eighth day, something brand new. This is a type of the biblical journey, I believe. If you take from the Genesis account of creation and Adam and Eve in the garden, tending the garden in perfection, and then you watch the chaos ensue following the fall, and then you go all the way up to Jesus, the climactic moment of the Bible is truly the cross and the resurrection. And in the garden on resurrection morning, there's a new gardener. And we wanna take you all the way to that gardener, that last Adam and what it might look like. To do so, we're going to walk through the eight days. And each time we start a new day, we will pause. We'll put that day up on the screen and its Christian title. And in each section, we'll have a passage that we'll share and a little story of what happens on that particular day. So without further ado, I want to lead you up to day one. Jesus has come out of Jericho. He was there on the Sabbath day in front of Palm Sunday. That is the famous moment of the healing of blind Bartimaeus and the encounter with Zacchaeus. Jesus is now on his way from Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem for what is Passover week. And that leads us to day one, Palm Sunday. Pilate would have come to Jerusalem on Passover week because this is the week that more pilgrims journey to Jerusalem than any time of the calendar year for Israel. They come to Jerusalem because it's Passover and they want to celebrate the Passover feast at the temple, the center of Jewish worship. We could even say heaven on earth for the Jew. Pilate shows up every year at Passover. He does not make his permanent residence in Jerusalem, by the way. His permanent residence is a Herodian palace in Caesarea Maritima. This is a little city on the coast that Herod has built a little uh, refuge for himself and for Pilate, and Pilate spends most of his time there in that coastal town, but he travels to Jerusalem at Passover just in case there's any sort of rebellion, to, to squash it, to quell the rebellion before it begins. In fact, there is a tower at the north west corner of the temple mount called the Antonia Fortress, where Pilate and his troops would set themselves up so they could peer down into the temple to see if there were any issues. Because if there were going to be political uprisings or rebellions against Rome, they were going to happen most likely during Passover because Passover held religious significance. For Israel, as well as political significance. Not only was it the time when the angel of death passed over the home, it was the time when God delivered Israel from their Egyptian oppressors. And so whenever there would be uprisings, they would rotate around those moments in which the present could kiss the past. Whenever the present could say, this is what happened then, and this is what should happen now. When Pilate arrives, he arrives from Caesarea, which is off to the west, which means he enters Jerusalem from the western side. And being a Roman procurator, he would have entered on a war horse, a battle horse. He would have come in with a parade and a procession, and most likely would have entered with a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort is 600 Roman troops. So imagine coming in from the west, Pilate underneath the Roman standard with 600 troops surrounding him, riding a battle horse into Jerusalem as a show of authority. So Jesus comes out of Jericho, which is from the east. He would come down from Bethany, pass through the Kidron Valley and enter Jerusalem from the eastern side, which is right at the temple. And when he does this, he would, he does it to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy, Jesus, in contrast to Pilate riding in on a horse, rides in on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, a young donkey. And instead of swords and Roman cohorts, almost in mocking fashion, Jesus comes in with palm fronds, not swords and spears, but the, the branches off of palm trees. And Jesus is intentional, he knows what he's doing. He's fulfilling a 500 year old prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Let me read it for you. From Zechariah chapter nine, verses nine and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's just a young donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So in fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy, Jesus comes riding in as the antidote to war, as the end to the war horse and the end to the chariot, that the kingdom that Jesus brings in doesn't come in on the back of a war horse. It comes in on the back of the lowest servant in the field, the donkey. You don't saddle the donkey and ride it to war. You burden it. You put upon it the load, Its back breaks underneath the strain of carrying someone else's burden. Jesus sets on the donkey as a type of the one who comes in not to be served, but to serve. Not to conquer at the point of the sword, but to worship at the point of the palm frond. The one who comes bearing the load. The one who comes as the servant. The question to ask on day one of the journey is which procession do you prefer? Which impresses you the most? The power, the authority, the majesty, the might and the height of Pilate's western gate entrance with his soldiers and his gleaming swords? Or the humility and nothingness and quiet solitude of a carpenter riding in from the east on a baby donkey Our preference for the procession says a lot about our possession of those processions. The ones we prefer become the ones we live out, become the ones we worship. Jesus has entered his final week and what an entrance he has made. Day two, Holy Monday. The Bible tells us that when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he goes into the temple area and he looks around. It's an interesting moment. He just looks around. He doesn't do anything. But as the sun sets, Jesus makes a decision that he will make over and over again this week, all the way up till Thursday night when the decision is taken out of his hands. On this particular Sunday night, he leaves Jerusalem. Because there is this undertow in the city, this growing, fermenting, foreboding dark cloud. Jesus has arrived on the donkey. This isn't lost on the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They know what he's doing. They're not happy about it, but he's trying to fulfill that 500-year-old prophecy that here comes the deliverer riding on a donkey. And there's an anger that begins to ferment. Jesus has walked into the temple, looked around, saw something, and decided that it was time to leave. And so Sunday night through Wednesday night, Jesus will depart Jerusalem at sundown and head back to the village of Bethany on the eastern side of the Kidron Valley, where he will probably rest at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This becomes the final place for Jesus on his way to the cross. And so what he sees in the temple on that Sunday evening must absolutely disturb him because on Holy Monday, Jesus comes back towards Jerusalem with his disciples. He crosses that valley again, and he comes in on the eastern side, walking into the temple mount. And On his way in, coming across that valley, Jesus gives us a bit of illustrative, almost comedic, dark comedic theater. As he crosses the Kidron Valley, he sees a fig tree. And it's not the season for figs. The gospels make this very clear. So what Jesus does next borders on the comedic absurd. He goes over to the fig tree and he looks for figs. His disciples have to be scratching their heads. Well, he's not stupid. He knows it's not fig season, but he's making a point. As he looks for figs, he finds none, and he says, well, curse on you, a curse be upon you, because there are no figs. And maybe the disciples chuckle a little. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny, whatever that means. And they go on into the temple. And when they arrive, remember Jesus, who came in last night and looked around, and something disturbed him. I think to the point he probably didn't sleep Sunday night. And now on Monday, as he walks into the temple, he sees the money changers tables. He sees the priesthood profiting off of the common man, literally exploiting them. What happened is that the temple believed that Roman coin was unholy and could not be used in service of the temple. So not only Roman coin, but any coin, anyone who traveled into Jerusalem had to exchange their money for temple printed script. This could be traded at an exorbitant fee. And you had to pay whatever the fee was. If you thought tax collection was bad, offering a sacrifice was even worse because you had to buy your sacrifice at the temple and you had to use temple coin. And Jesus stands watching people being exploited. The people that suffer the most in this are the poor and the outcast and the marginalized and the hurting and nothing has ever moved the heart of God throughout Scripture, like the crushing of the poor and the marginalized and the hurting. And so Jesus begins to fashion a whip and slam it against the money changers' tables. He grabs the feet of the tables and he flips them over. In a moment of supreme violence, the most violent we see Jesus ever get, he never picks up a sword and swings it at a human, but he tears up the tables of money changers because the anger is directed at anything that blocks the people of God from access to God. And once again, Jesus on the second day is playing out an Old Testament prophecy, not lost on the scribes. This time from Jeremiah chapter seven, he's doing exactly what Jeremiah did in verse eight. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. This is a moment where Jeremiah goes into the temple and prophesies that it isn't going to be able to sustain this attitude of doing whatever and then standing in this temple as if it is okay and not long after Jeremiah prophesies that Solomon's temple comes down in destructive fashion and only one generation after Jesus turns the tables over the temple of Herod comes down in destructive fashion as well. And I think what Holy Monday teaches us is there is to be nothing that bars access to God Almighty and be careful merchandising the people of God and be careful marginalizing the stranger and making it difficult to find God. If you have imposed so many theological rules on what it takes to get to heaven or what it takes to find God. I dare say that in this hour, the sweeping that we need is another return to the temple of our hearts by Jesus and turn over the tables of things that keep people from the purity of God. May we never rob another soul of the beauty of Jesus. And that day comes to an end. And I want to remind you of something that is so easy to forget. Jeremiah's temple in Jeremiah 7 eventually comes down. Jesus standing in the temple somewhere around AD 29, AD 33, wherever it is that Jesus dies. Within a generation, that temple comes down. But the temple does not come down because of the the retributive wrath of God. The temple comes down because of the consequence of their sin. Don't look at God's wrath as God getting angry and mad and getting back at us. Look at the phrase wrath as the consequence of whatever it is we've stepped into. And Holy Monday comes to an end. Jesus goes back to the Kidron Valley, crosses over, goes up the hill to Bethany, and his day comes to a conclusion. Day three, Holy Tuesday. On this day of Passion Week or Holy Week, Jesus brings his disciples back into the temple again. Now remember, there's a stir because yesterday Jesus started what appeared to almost be some sort of temple insurrection. And so there's nerves are on edge as Jesus walks into the temple. And as he enters... He, uh, he, he weeps over Jerusalem. He, he, he speaks to his disciples of this temple, the, the very one that he knocked the tables over yesterday. And he says to the temple and everyone in it, your house is about to be left unto you desolate. Not one stone of this place is going to be left unturned. And in Matthew chapter 24, the Bible says him and his disciples are sitting there looking at that temple when his disciples say to him, when is this going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Not the end of the world, but when is this age going to happen? What age? When is the age of this temple coming down and not one stone being left unturned? And the entire 24th chapter of Matthew is what we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus, having now left the temple, takes his disciples back to the Mount of Olives on the other side of Gethsemane and staring down across the valley towards the temple. He points and he says, this thing's coming down and here's when it's going to happen and he warns them and all throughout matthew 24 it's not some coded chapter of events you need to be watching cnn and fox news and scouring the internet and finding youtube videos to figure out the code no it's a list of events that would happen to that generation that would precede the fall of that temple and not only that temple but would precede the fall of the temple age And your entire New Testament flows out of that prophecy. Every New Testament prophecy of we upon whom the end of the world have come. We who stand at the end of the age. The time is short. All of those prophecies were from apostles who heard Jesus say in Matthew 24, 34, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. His Olivet Discourse is not something that you and I are putting out in our future to warn us of the end of the world. It is something he was putting out in front of his disciples' future so that they would not go back to a flawed, failing, and dying system. That the consequences of that system crushing the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed meant it was coming down. What we will learn later in the New Testament, articulated, say, through the writer to the Hebrews, is that Jesus would bring in a better covenant with a better promise that he would do greater things than that temple had seen. Paul spends his ministry elaborating on that. But in this hour, on Holy Tuesday, the Olivet Discourse could probably be summed up best in what Jesus says in John. You see, John doesn't contain an all of that Discourse, and that is a spectacular little narrative fact because John is the last gospel written, and John is almost definitely written after the fall of the temple in AD 70. In fact, John might be written close to the end of the first century or the beginning of the second. John's Jesus is entirely different because John's Jesus is not speaking to Israel about the end of their age. He's speaking to the world about the beginning of a new age in the beginning God created and when he he doesn't give the Olivet discourse but he gives a little bitty slice of it and he sticks it way up at the front of John John chapter 2 as if it's a prescient statement for the reader of John to know that even though this hasn't happened yet in the life of Jesus, we know it has happened and we are what Jesus is forming. Let me read for you what I mean when I say that John puts this, maybe this greatest moment of the discourse without ever giving us the Olivet Discourse. And he puts it in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You are his body. I am a part of his body. The church universal, the church catholic, small c. All encompassing are all part of his body. Across time and across space, across geography, culture, race, gender, creed, language, we are his body. Peter would call us living stones, lively stones, I think the King James says. And we are not, it is not marble and concrete. It is stones of hearts and flesh and spirit. We are his body and we don't have to go back to any lesser temple. And good news, and if this messes up your eschatology, so be it. God isn't trying to get a new temple built on the Dome of the Rock, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Why would he go backward from the temple he always wanted, which was to live in his people, to go in a building where he doesn't live in his people? And what's he going to do when he gets it? Reinstitute animal sacrifices? How cheap do we think the blood of Jesus is, that God would need to go back to lambs, goats, pigeons, and bullocks? He has the blood of Jesus. And thus, On the Mount of Olives, Jesus brings Holy Tuesday to an end. And so do we. Day four, Holy Wednesday. On the Wednesday before the Passion, Jesus spends his time in Bethany. Maybe we're to assume that when he spends the night in Bethany on Tuesday night, he stays there on Wednesday. Sort of a, and no one in the room could have quite known this, but sort of a, Uh, final party with his friends, maybe with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all of his other friends. Jesus had spent a considerable amount of time in Bethany. Well, I say unbeknownst to everybody, but really maybe it is not, because the Bible records in Mark 14 a spectacular moment when Mary brings a spikenard of ointment. This is a big old bottle of perfume. And strangely, it is the, the so expensive that it's absurd. Okay, for instance, Mark tells us that it is uh, a year's worth of wages. Now, I don't know how much you make in a year, but can you imagine taking your annual salary, no matter how great or small it is, and buying a jar of perfume with it? Well, you better make a lot of money. And then if you did buy that jar of perfume, you're probably gonna use it in special occasions. And you're going to make that baby last generations. Like your whole family gets to use that perfume. Mary brings this into Jesus at Bethany on Holy Wednesday and breaks the entire bottle over Jesus's head. And the ointment flows all the way down his body to the floor. And don't judge the disciples too harshly when they say amongst themselves, why this waste because even though that's a an amazing statement, they say that anything could be a waste that you performed on Jesus. I just want you to try to put yourself in their mentality for a moment, what they just saw. This is unbelievable. Why would anybody do this? And their response to their own question, why this waste is, couldn't it have been better served if we had sold this and given the money to the poor? Now, I want you to notice their sort of philanthropy. They they are speaking the language of the kingdom in so many words. They've been hanging out with Jesus and they've learned Jesus wouldn't like this kind of silliness, uh, spending this much money on a bottle of perfume when there are people out here dying in the streets. And so they say the thing, I think, that sounds the most correct, that sounds the most spiritual. And honestly, we would even expect Jesus maybe to go, yeah, you guys are right. I mean, this was a nice gesture, Mary, but come on, you know, use your head. Um, Instead, Jesus honors her. Let me read for you Mark chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. I want to say two things about this that I think are Crucial. There's a lot of good stuff here, but I want to land on two. Number one, the disciples were wrong. They were straight up wrong that this should be sold and given to the poor because this was an act of worship. And there is nothing greater in the world than an act of worship. You could say, I I, I like this thought, the test of loving God is loving your neighbor. The test of loving your neighbor is loving your enemy. But be very careful that you don't replace loving God with loving your neighbor. And sometimes our social ideology of helping people is founded in political purposes, but not founded in love for God. And so we sometimes are, are leaning into charitable acts because it's what our party tells us to do and not what our Holy Spirit tells us to do. And I don't mean that we ought to ignore people for purposes of politics. Not at all. But just be sure that what we are doing is not replacing love of God with kindness to our neighbor. And secondly, and this this one to me is the real point of Holy Wednesday. Jesus said she did this for my burial. There's no indication that she does this for his burial. We don't see her saying, I'm doing this for your burial, but Jesus gives her credit. So let's go ahead and follow Jesus. Mary anoints Jesus for his burial and no one in the room thinks he's going to die. Mary anoints him for his burial, which is something you do after they're dead. Maybe Mary has a spiritual insight that Jesus isn't going to even be in the grave long enough for her to anoint his body. They anointed the bodies so they wouldn't stink because you would leave them in the grave. You'd leave them in the stone grave for a couple of years while their flesh rotted away. Then you'd put their bones in a family box and you would keep them. And so you would anoint the body to keep it from stinking. She anoints Jesus before he's even dead. And Jesus says, she's doing this for my burial. I think the whole room goes quiet for my burial. You're not going to die. What are you talking about? And then Jesus says, wherever this is talked about, this will be a testimony to her and the whole world, which is Jesus' way of saying the entire gospel that you're going to preach from here on out is this. I died. I was buried. They don't know yet about any of it, much less resurrection. But the anticipa- by saying this is the gospel, She'll be rewarded and talked about forever. By, by anointing him for his burial, she's anointing him because she's not going to have time to once he dies. He's going to resurrect. And the gospel is going to rotate around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What an amazing day in Bethany. And now it really gets started. Day five, Maundy Thursday. The word Monday is Old Latin. If if Monday stands by itself, it's a word that generally means, you know, Jesus washing of feet and telling his disciples to do likewise. But it's not a word we use by itself. We use it as Monday, Thursday, and it comes from the Latin that is for the word mandate. And so when you see Monday, Thursday, you're really dealing with the mandate given by Christ to his disciples on what we call the Last Supper. Because Maundy Thursday is the moment of the Last Supper. Everything moves very quickly from Thursday on because we know that Thursday night becomes the moment when Jesus goes on trial. In fact, Thursday night marks the only known time in the ministry of Jesus that he spends the night in Jerusalem. We know that as a child he must have when they come into Jerusalem and he's left there for 3 days, but as an adult in his ministry, he usually avoids Jerusalem. He'll have to stay there on Thursday night because of the events that are going to unfold, but this is quite an amazing moment, quite an amazing day on Monday Thursday because this is the moment where Jesus brings his disciples into what we because of Leonardo da Vinci call the last supper. <laughs> We we uh, we see Jesus bring his disciples in, and they're actually to celebrate the Jewish Passover meal. But Jesus, in a remarkable turn of events, reapportions the Passover meal and turns it into the communion meal. Christians now celebrate communion and have for centuries as a direct result of what happens on Maundy Thursday. When Jesus sets down to take the Passover meal and he takes bread and he breaks it and he passes it across the table and says, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. When he takes the cup of wine and he hands it to his disciples and he says, take and drink, this is the blood, this is my blood shed for you. What Paul would say that Jesus says to him in 1 Corinthians is, this is the blood of a new covenant shed for you. Jesus at Passover meal actually institutes a brand new covenant and invites his disciples into it. And how he caps it off to inaugurate the new covenant is not by killing a lamb, which is how you always inaugurate a covenant. He's going to do that tomorrow when he dies on the cross, but in this moment, he kills something else. He kills and shows, he kills that desire to be something. He lays down his own pride, he stands up. John chapter 13 says he stands up. He knows that all things have been given to him. He knows that all things have come to pass. And he puts a towel around his waist and he kneels in front of his disciples and they are repulsed. They can't believe this. Remember, the disciples are excited. They think we're in Jerusalem, man. This is when it's all going to happen. He's going to come out as the Messiah and we're going to win this thing. We've been waiting on our moment. And now here he is Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and he's washing feet, which is the lowliest job you can have. So Peter can't take it anymore. And Peter says, You're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus, of course, says, If I don't wash your feet, well, I don't have a part in you. And you don't have a part in me. Peter goes, Well, you know, if you're going to wash feet, um, why don't you just wash all of me? Jesus says you don't understand if you've been washed once you don't need to be rewashed again you just need your feet splashed off which is a becomes a great allegory for you don't have to get resaved all the time but you do need to keep coming back to Jesus because he loves you and he'll clean off whatever the world keeps splashing you with But the greater suggestion is not just that Jesus does this, but then he invites his disciples to do this because that's what we do. We lay down something, our pride, our self, our desire, and we serve our neighbor. we don't judge them. We just splash them. Your job isn't to clean up the world. That's the job of Christ. Your job is to wash the feet off of the world they get close to you, they ought to hear the goodness of God. Splash them off with the water of the word. The church is not a place where we're hoping to get everybody to change. The church is a place where we're hoping to get the chance to serve and wash people's feet. You want to see their lives improve? Absolutely. If you don't want to see their lives improve, you probably hate them. You want to see their lives improve, but you know it happens only in Christ. And so you clean them off by splashing their feet. So part of it is communion. Part of it is foot washing. Part of it is a new commandment. That's why it's Maundy Thursday. It's Mandate Thursday. Here's the mandate. John chapter 13, verse 34. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Please don't turn this into a Christian soundbite. Don't turn this into a grace soundbite. I was talking to a group recently about loving your neighbor and what it might look like. And someone come up to me after the service and said, well, listen, man, you don't have to preach any of that. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. All you got to do is just tell people that Jesus loves them and they'll love. And I thought, well, in principle, sure. Tell people that Jesus loves them and they'll love, but don't be so sure that you haven't put off the job of loving people because you have a Christian soundbite. Don't be so sure you haven't put off the job of loving people because you figured out how to distill it all down to a verse and then just wait Loving people is active Loving people is sometimes hard Loving people is uncomfortable Because it's the enemy Loving the people that love you back. That's not That's not special But we love because he first loved us and yes, we need a comprehension of that love. That's the mandate on Monday, Thursday, is to love. He also tells the apostles that they're going to sit on 12 thrones and judge. This is part of their mandate. And I think that they do, every time we read the epistles, we're reading the writings of the apostles, and they do judge the church through those. I don't mean they judge you to hell, but they judge our, they govern our actions. The mandate was taken serious then. The mandate is taken serious now. And therefore... Maundy, Thursday comes to a close. But instead of going to the sun up of the next day, we're just going to take the clock past midnight, into the middle of the night. Day six, Good Friday. Beginning with at least Sunday night, when Jesus comes out of Jerusalem back to Bethany. Monday night, out of Jerusalem, back to Bethany. Tuesday night, out of Jerusalem, back to Bethany. It looks like he probably stays in Bethany on Wednesday, comes back into Jerusalem on Thursday. But every journey he would leave by the eastern side, somewhere what's now maybe the Lion's Gate, he would leave out of that gate, he would cross the Kidron Valley. And to get to Bethany, he would have to go through a little garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, literally a word that means the place of the olive press. And so they press, there's olive trees all over Gethsemane, and they would press the olives for olive oil. There was a press there. This is a a garden, but also a place of harvest, a place of crushing. Probably on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Jesus, on their way back to Bethany, stops with his disciples, and they rest after crossing the Kidron Valley. Maybe they laugh, they tell jokes, They talk, they pray, they fall asleep, but they do it consistently enough that when Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he tells the high priest, I know where you can find him, and he walks them right to Gethsemane. I I like to think that Jesus probably stopped there night after night after night so that he could create a pattern by which Judas could find him that he could step into the trap voluntarily. And Judas comes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he greets Jesus with a kiss. And by greeting Jesus with a kiss, it says to us most likely that Judas expects that what he's about to do is corner Jesus and cause him to become the Messiah Judas knows he can be. By greeting him with a kiss, he's trying to stay in Jesus' good graces. He's trying to stay in the, the, the group of disciples with Peter, James, and John. Otherwise, he doesn't greet Jesus with a kiss. He doesn't greet Jesus at all. He just points at Jesus and then slinks away, lets the soldiers do their work. But he boldly walks up to Jesus and kisses him, not because he's cocky, not because he's angry, not because he's mean, but because he's loyal and because he's hopeful. And he thinks, if I can corner Jesus and back him into a corner, he will fight back finally. He will do what we've hoped he would do. In fact, on the way into the garden, Jesus even encourages his disciples to pick up a couple of swords. Maybe there's a couple of reasons for that. One is there's an ancient uh, Roman law that in that day that said, if a group of men were found with more than one sword, they could be considered insurrectionists. And maybe Jesus had them arm themselves so that they would he would be numbered amongst transgressors. But I really think there's an even deeper spiritual reason. Because once the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls his sword and swings it at the head of one of the men. The man glances and the sword misses, but takes off his ear right off the side of his skull. And Jesus jumps in the middle and holds his hand up to Peter. Stop, Peter. Permit this. Put your sword up. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I think the reason he had them pick up swords in the first place was so that they could learn to never pull them. It's, it's one thing to say, oh, I don't believe in pulling the sword when you don't have one to pull. It's one thing to not believe in power when you don't have any. But when you have the power, when you have the money, when you have the control, when you have the weapons of war, and you don't use the weapon of war, you turn your sword into a plowshare, then you know you've been impacted by the Jesus of Gethsemane. And so Jesus says, if you live by it, you're going to die by it. Permit even this. Put your sword up. And I think in that moment, Judas, who just kissed Jesus, shrinks back in horror he brought these soldiers here to corner jesus this is the moment jesus is supposed to show up and do his thing but jesus isn't showing up and doing his thing he's doing that old thing again that love your enemies bit that stuff we thought was good principle but won't work in the real world and here he is trying it on the battlefield what is he doing he's blowing it And Judas shrinks away. And sometime in the next few hours, as Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane and taken into the temple, and then he's taken before Pontius Pilate and he is condemned to die, Judas realizes what he has done and he brings the 30 pieces of silver back into the temple. And the Bible says he repents. What do you think happens when you repent? Not only does he repent, he throws the money on the floor. And he leaves. He walks away from the payoff. And he hangs himself in guilt and shame and condemnation. Jesus stands in front of Pontius Pilate. Doesn't say a word. Pilate stands there, the alpha male in the room. Head up, chest out, shoulders back. And he says to Jesus, what is truth? And the Bible says that Jesus doesn't say a word. And if you mix the stories of the gospels, you have Pilate in a couple of moments saying to Jesus, I have the power to destroy you or the power to let you go. Let me tell you what Pilate's doing. Let's put those stories together. Hey, what is truth? Oh, you don't want to talk to me? I'll tell you what truth is. Truth is, I got the power. I can kill you or I can let you go. That's truth. That's power. You want to see who a real king is? You know what? I don't believe in you. I wash my hands of this. You're a joke. I'm going to offer you to the people, and I'm going to put you up against a real insurrectionist. Barabbas. Bar Abba Yeshua is his full name. Son of the Father. Jesus Yeshua bar Abbas, Jesus, son of the father versus Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to put you out there. A real insurrection. Barabbas was arrested for insurrection. And the people choose Barabbas because at least Barabbas will fight for what he believes in. You go, well, that's not fair. No, that's exactly fair. One of the only things Jesus said to Pilate was, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would fight. If you're fighting, then you know your kingdom is of this earth. That's the litmus test. And so Pilate gives them Barabbas and beats Jesus. Jesus goes down what we now call the Via Dolorosa. He carries his cross, this slow, curving, uphill journey to Calvary, the place of the skull, a place that history says was probably also its a, a dump, a trash dump, that sat next to a garden. It's fitting that Jesus would die in a trash dump so that he could transform the world into a garden the cross is an ugly thing. It's a bloody thing. It is vicious. Paul called it a scandal. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. Paul says, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Look at that word stumbling block. That's the Greek word scandalon. That's where we get scandal. Paul was really saying we preach that Christ is crucified and it is the great scandal and it is a scandal we are proud of. Please do not reduce the cross to pithy singular atonement theories. The cross was not simply doing this or that. The cross was doing everything. The cross was opening the gateway to God. It was the destruction of evil and the devil. The cross was God dying as man. It was him stepping into our darkest moment to relieve us of it. It was him taking upon himself the sin of the world. Not partially, not kind of, not a few. All past, present, and future. It was God clicking reset. It was God putting an end to one game and starting another one. It was God taking the reins. But don't ever forget it was God dying. It was violent. He was the victim. Don't simply put it as he died for me. Believe that he died as you. And Good Friday, with its darkness and its blackness and its blood, comes to an end with Jesus saying, It is finished. Day seven, Holy Saturday. Jesus is in the tomb. The world has come to an end. <laughs> there's, there's no other way to say it. Everything that man had hoped for, it's gone. Jesus, God wrapped in human flesh is dead. This is a moment when you can say in the eyes of man that God is dead. This is the darkness this is the end, but not really. One of the things about my own Christian culture that is a little regrettable about my theology is that we just sort of jumped from Good Friday to the resurrection. We didn't do a lot with the middle part. The Apostles' Creed tells us that he descended to the dead. He, some, parts of the, some versions of the Creed say he descended to hell. And on the third day, he rose again. That's a little much for some people's sensibilities because they think it means Jesus goes down there to burn. And that's because we have a misunderstanding. We have a Dante's hell. We don't have a biblical hell. But Jesus goes into the darkness and he goes to work. If we concentrated a little bit on Holy Saturday of what Jesus is doing in the tomb, he who ascended first descended. If we talked about his descent, to harrow hell, we could at least have something to talk about in regards to what his cross means for victory, not simply for death. When I was in Jerusalem, I picked up an icon. It's an Eastern Orthodox Church icon called Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. This is that icon. And I will put a picture of this up on the screen for those of you on video. Those of you listening on audio, I would encourage you to, uh, to take a look at this portion of the video. And as you can see, this is, this is powerful. I'm, I'm going to let this be our statement for Holy Saturday. There's Jesus standing on the cross, coming out of the grave. If you'll notice, he has his in his right hand a man and in his left hand a woman. The Orthodox Church has taught for centuries that this is an icon of Jesus pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave, and I want you to notice perhaps even against their will because they are not holding his hand. He is holding their wrists, the indication of dragging. Underneath the cross is death, or the devil hog-tied powerless to stop Jesus This orthodox icon says Anastasis which is resurrection but it's titled Jesus' descent into Hades or the harrowing of hell Jesus goes into the dark to bring us into the light day 8 Easter Resurrection. Here we are. We've arrived at resurrection. The stone rolls away. I stood in the garden tomb about a week ago and saw just this empty room and then sat in the garden and stared at that empty tomb door and reflected on what it must have felt like. To be Mary standing in that garden and seeing a gardener and assuming that it was a gardener, but not knowing that it was Jesus. And I realized that I'm not that far removed. I've missed Jesus so many times in other people's eyes and in other people's professions and in other people's lives. And I thought Jesus had to look this way, but he looked that way. The beauty of all of that summed up in the reality that... God gardens in Eden by sticking his hands into the dirt and pulling up Adam and breathing into him. And at the resurrection, God gardens again and reaches his hands into the soil of our lives and fashions a brand new creation. Bible tells us that his clothes were still inside. Let me read for you on this Easter moment, this eighth day, this brand new day, the first day of the rest of your life. Really, Easter is the first day of the rest of eternity for the whole cosmos. God resurrects a new man on the earth. John chapter 20, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. The gardener knows your name because the gardener is gardening your heart. This is is the heartbeat of Jesus. Remember his kingdom parables? The kingdom's like a guy that puts seed in the ground. He loves that seed analogy because he loves planting something new. And gardeners cannot be afraid to get their hands dirty or they won't be a good gardener. You haven't done so much you've run God off. He's put the hands into the dirt of your heart. Your dirty, messy life is not too much for the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. He gladly reaches down into the soil of your existence. And he fashions a new you. I also like to think that Jesus, is the gardener, is clothed over. One of the reasons she doesn't recognize him is he's clothed over in glory like Adam and Eve were in the garden before their fall. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked but unashamed. Jesus is naked in the garden. He has to be. His clothes are still lying inside the tomb. The Bible tells us this more than once that his clothes are folded up inside the tomb. What's he wearing? He's clothed over in the light that covered Adam and Eve in the garden. He is the walking embodiment of the glory of God. This is transfigured Jesus. This is what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is Jesus clothed in light, still gardening to this day. I want to close with a little poem and then a prayer. G.K. Chesterton, the everlasting man. On the third day, The friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty, and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. I want to say to you, he's walking not in the evening, but in the dawn of a new day, Easter, is the sun has come up on a brand new creation. I have such a sweet peace in my soul right now, such a beautiful sense of the love of God. Father, thank you for my friends. I pray you bless them on this Easter. And whenever they're listening to this message, that it'll be one that gets them so infatuated with Jesus. Garden our hearts as you guard our hearts. For someone whose life is messy, and we all are, may we have a revelation that you are not scared to put your hands into the soil of our heart and fashion something new. Plant the kingdom of God into our hearts and our consciousness and our souls that we may shine like the sun of Easter. The sun of righteousness has arisen with healing in his wings. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed the journey to the eighth day. Now, go live from the eighth day. God bless.